Hello and welcome to the Owen Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with the legal and financial news that matters to you. My name is Rob Coleridge and I'm in the hot seat this week. We'll be discussing changing consumer behaviours and how they've been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll also look ahead to what businesses have done during the last year and can do in the future to overcome challenges and make the most of the opportunities presented to them. To do that, I'm delighted to be joined by my fellow colleague and consumer sector specialist, Alex Newman, and Simon Fries, co-founder of SenseCheck.co.uk and change agent and director of growth at Bigger and Better Things. Simon, Alex, welcome. Hi. Hiya. Right. To get us started, and before we get into the reason you're all here today, I'd like to know what's the one thing you're looking forward to doing again when retail, hospitality and leisure opens back up? Um, well, I'll... I'll change that into two things, if that's okay. I'd like to carry on with my uh, football coaching and see my under-18s boys get back on the football pitch. Um, And I'd also like to just go and sit in a beer garden with a friend and have a pint. Oh, God, I really, I cannot wait to get into the pub to have a pint. And hopefully we can do that again ourselves in a few weeks. Alex, how does it feel for you? So the first thing that popped into my head was I really want to go to the pub. Um, I thought about telling you that I really want to get back to the gym. I've not really missed that that much, to be honest. So, yeah, it's it's the pub for me as well. Yeah, I think that most people would say exactly the same thing. Right. Um, let's move on to into the, the reason we're here today. The consumer sector is vital to the health of the UK economy, but it's been severely impacted by COVID-19. We've seen huge shifts in consumer behaviour. 61% of us have changed stores, brands, all the way we shop. And one key trend has been the move online. In fact, it feels like it's been coming for a number of years, but the pandemic has really forced the issue. Some retailers have been able to adapt and thrive, and they've embraced e-commerce and digital marketing and shifted their offer to target a more ethically conscious audience. But many have struggled, and giants such as Debenhams, Burton's and Topshop have disappeared from the high street for good. Most recently, John Lewis announced it would be permanently closing eight more stores to help it recover from the losses it felt during the pandemic. And with Brexit bringing delays and confusion to imports and exports, the consumer sector is going to have to continue to be resilient once coronavirus passes. So that lays a fairly serious scene. We've seen some real highs and some real lows over the last 12 months. And the first thing I want to talk about is really this move online, because over the last 12 months, there has been this huge shift to online and e-commerce and physical stores have come under real pressure. 20 percent of people hadn't considered buying their groceries online before the pandemic. 41% have since made that shift to online shopping. So what I want to know first, how do we think that has impacted business models? Simon, what do you think? It's naturally got to have uh, a massive effect, uh, effect on, on business models. Um, I, I think it's a question of how people adapt to those channels. Obviously, physical environments have been impossible for people to, to uh, visit. And I think what it's placed is a reappraisal of the whole uh, way in which people meet people's needs um, and how they assess that. I think there's great emphasis on a, a reappraisal um, of how distinctive people can be in their markets, how relevant they need to be in their markets. Um, and I think there's been, in general, two tribes of people uh, looking at their business models, one taking a strategic review and making sure they are relevant with the value propositions, and others panicking into a um, a quick win scenario of how do we just keep getting sales and just really throwing what they can into tactical promotions. So I think it's had a, a, a massive effect, but it's a question of understanding the, the right channel use and how 
how businesses can can build their relationships with their customers as quickly and as effectively as possible, regardless of channel. I mean, there are so many choices out there in terms of kind of how you can go online, right through from building your own website uh, uh, to using the likes of Amazon as an agent to make your sales. And the decisions you make to set yourself up in that way um, are absolutely vital, in addition to kind of thinking about the whole logistics of getting the operation absolutely right so you can deal with the volume of B2D sales, but not only the sales, but also the return. So it's a complex set of decisions to make. What's your view on it, Alex? Yeah, I think that's I think that's right, Rob. And from my perspective, I guess there's there's two sort of big issues which businesses need to face, adapt, and and, and develop their business models to accommodate. But firstly, when when businesses are now um, doing much more of their business online, the challenge uh, to to compete for attention and for traffic online is a different challenge to you know, the corresponding challenge on the high street, different techniques, def- different strategies need to be adopted. Um, businesses can't rely on people walking past and seeing a large shop frontage and attracting people in that way. They have to do different things to attract the audience in the first place. But probably more importantly than that, it's it's the whole user experience side and making sure that um, the user experience in an online environment is as good as it can be. And again, that that poses a, a number of different challenges which are very different to the to challenges in, in the high street store. Every, everybody knows where they stand if they're going into a store and what the experience is likely to be. It's a bit different in the online world because the fulfillment channels, the whole user experience can be very, very different from one business to the next. And you know, if businesses do manage to get the traffic, get a consumer engaged and get a sale online, they're not going to get a second sale if they don't get the fulfillment right, if they don't make sure they deliver on time, if they don't make sure that the product they've sold is on is in stock, if they don't make sure that they offer a seamless, easy returns process for, for their consumers. So all of these things are things that they haven't had to pay as much attention to whilst most of their business has been done on the high street. All of these are issues which they really are going to have to up their game on as, as the, the shift to online continues uh, and we see that greater polarization not only to sales but of course advertising online as well because one of the things we've seen in our report is kind of the rise in the use of the likes of influencers and and getting that that partnership right using the right uh, advertising channels is 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 almost as, is just as important as the kind of way the way you sell and the logistics behind it because as we've seen in recent week if you partner up with the wrong influencer and that can do huge damage not only uh, to yourselves, but also to the brand generally. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that totally. I think that's a, um, a really hot topic at this moment in time in that, you know, people are sort of saying, right, OK, we need to we need to work with influencers. As you do, you have to work with the right influencers that are right for your brand, that are right for your business. Or you don't work with influencers at all if that's not the case. Um, as Alex was was talking around, there's a there's a, a massive logistical challenge of making sure you have the right infrastructure to support your switch from online. But then it's basically about understanding how you are going to reach those people. I've been seeing a, a lot of successful businesses are spending a lot of time researching and profiling their customer base from a human perspective. What language are they using? What search terms are they using? And there's quite a, a growth from the specialist areas of 
uh, artificial intelligence and and human language to really understand the dynamics of what people are doing and that changes that changes weekly you know it changes daily so this is a moving feast you can't just say we've got our business here we'll take it online and and this is what we do and expect people to find you you have to match and structure everything in in great detail and then understand how you reach and how you communicate effectively with your with your consumers and just Simon, just to kind of round this 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 subject off, I mean, do you think that this modern environment has has been good for startups? I I think it's been very good for startups because um, brand loyalty is is a thing of the past. People are much more uh, accessible and and open to trying new things, trying new brands, and lots of uh, trust in brands is is fractured. So new startups have an opportunity to rewrite the rules to be brave to do things differently to change the way that things have been done and challenge things you know just taking an existing brand putting your packaging online and then hoping to sell it you know won't work brands that are really clever will understand that the dynamics of how people purchase online is different you can't see just the simple pack that lives on a shelf actually online is not legible, you can't find the variant, you can't see necessarily what the brands are. So actually you work on hero imaging so that actually you make it simple for people to to uh, to access, identify and then buy um, so you don't make mistakes. So they're very, very simple things, but very powerful things that need to need to change when you're switching your emphasis online. That kind of leads into the next thing I want to talk about, which is about consumer motivation and how that's changed. Because what we, we can see there's been a big swing, particularly amongst Generation Z, towards sustainability, ethical business and localism. And I want to kind of explore how that affects brands and how bigger brands are able to adapt as opposed to smaller brands. Alex, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's uh, it, it, undoubtedly we've all seen that, um, particularly at the start of lockdown, we saw all over the news that businesses who had a genuine focus on ethically sourced, sustainable products were being very successful and were more quickly able to pivot their business models to maintain revenues and survive in comparison to competitors who were less well known for that sort of thing and didn't engage with consumers uh, on, on that subject. I think, it, I think it poses a real challenge for a lot of businesses though, particularly established businesses because Undoubtedly, these days, consumers do want to know about and understand the ethical considerations, the sustainability considerations which businesses have invested in, paid heed to and um, made efforts to do what do what they can. The difficulty that the more established businesses face is that if they if they suddenly start to do more and more and shout more and more loudly about this sort of thing, about their efforts in sustainability and ethical sourcing, they face the very real possibility that the Generation Z demographic is going to see that in quite a cynical light uh, and believe that what's actually happening isn't a genuine interest in ethics and sustainability, but just an attempt to do what is necessary to please a target demographic and maintain revenues and profitability. And finding the balance between doing something genuine, investing genuinely, but getting the messaging right so that those efforts are perceived in the correct way, which actually turns consumers on rather than turns consumers off, 
is a challenge that those businesses really have to take seriously and think very carefully about how they how they confront it. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Alex. I think um, I think any business that sees sustainability as a box ticking exercise and part of the CSR programme is really going to get a rude awakening, um, particularly from the, the Gen Z um, generation. Um, there is a demand and expectation um, that that is a basic consideration of what you do. And if you don't consider that, then um, they won't consider you. The, the consumer, and particularly the younger consumer, is, is a, an unreasonable consumer. They want everything now. They want it fast. They want it cheap. They demand that it's ethically sourced. Um, and, you know, there is a lot of expectations and you need to rise to, to meet that. And, and it is a, I don't think it's just a, a, an expectation of the younger generation. I think right the way through the generations, there is a, an understanding that people are important how businesses look after their people, treat their people, treat their suppliers. Uh, you know, retailers have come in for challenges with, on th that sort of front. How local things are sourced, you know, to cut down the, the, the air miles. But what you cannot do is greenwash because you will be found out. They will research it. They will dig into it. And if you are not 100% genuine, they'll make it public. So um, do it and do it genuinely. The, the other point to make in relation to that is that COVID has genuinely changed the way consumers perceive the world, their environment, what matters, what doesn't matter. And everybody has had you know, thrust into their face a real increased sense of their own mortality, of the mortality of the people that they care about, of the fragility of life, the environment that they live in, the freedoms that we've all taken for granted for however many years. I think what we're seeing is, is basically an irreversible trend and an, an upward trajectory in people caring about ethically sourced products, demanding ethically sourced products, and the COVID pandemic has been a real catalyst for that. Just to support that, I would just say the, the fact that Generation Z, uh, as I understand it, are so comfortable with assessing and, and, and criticising information that if you say you are something, they will test that, as you were saying, Simon, earlier. And therefore, it not only is a drive to be more sustainable, but it's to back it up and be utterly transparency. So it, it's it's a question of being both authentic and transparent about uh, the position you take. And I think that for bigger brands, that can be difficult because of the simple the size of the business. And they face a real challenge there. Yeah, I, I think in general, one of the big societal shifts and human shifts uh, that the last 12 months has, has driven is that we recognise that we've become a little bit disconnected from our food um, and also disconnected from, from our environment and our, our, our planet. Um, and I think what it has allowed us to do is become more connected with food. It's the one thing that we can control. And I think that people have been having conversations about and experimenting with. Um, and similarly, I, I think that... Um, People have connected with nature because they've been outside. It's the only thing that they can do. So there's a there's a uh, a stronger sh a stronger shift and a stronger appreciation of the environment and and the fragility of it. And I think that's brought it into focus for everybody. Simon, can you think of any businesses that have really stood out to you in rising to these challenges? Yeah, I I, I think you know even um, apart from the 
the expected beneficiaries, you know, the Zooms of this world and the Netflix, um, the Amazons and the, the delivery people. I think uh, businesses that have worked well have, have worked basically things. People like Lathwaite from the, the wine perspective have, have done really well. Peloton, where it's exercised and it's organised, it's contained. There's a proposition to be able to deliver and that people can use their disposable income on. The garden centres and DIY, you know, have adapted really well. Their challenge has been getting supplies. And even things like, you know, Games Workshop or even the the jigsaw puzzle businesses. Yeah, you cannot get a jigsaw puzzle on Amazon for love nor money, you know. So whoever thought there'd be a waiting list for a jigsaw anymore? Um, so, you know, there's, there's important aspects. Um, and brands that have quality. You know, small businesses like the, the, the Truckle Cheese Company, where it'll cost you a tenner for a particular type of, of cheddar, you know, that have added benefits, added taste benefits. People are actually taking that, that opportunity to treat themselves, experiment with quality, with meats, uh, with fresh produce, and actually to, to control that experience and enjoy it a little bit more. So there are businesses like that that have... Have have really taken off um, with an online proposition. I think that's right. I think particularly if you look at the sort of premium end of the the food and drinks industry, you know, people haven't been able to go out and spend their money in restaurants, in bars, where they would obviously be paying significantly more for a particular product than they pay, you know, if they buy it from the supermarket or buy it online and, and consume it at home. So whereas a year ago before lockdown, probably all of us have a sort of inbuilt upper limit on how much we're willing to spend on a bottle of wine or how much we're willing to spend on you know, 200 grams of cheese or whatever else. Yeah. Those limits have really gone up. So I guess that the premium brands, there is sort of luxury end of the, the food and drinks industry particularly, who have now engaged on a, on a B2C business and are selling directly to the consumers, where they've been able to generate profile and attract people to their websites, their social media accounts, any other way that they attract traffic. I think those businesses have really noticed that there's been a willingness for consumers to buy products that they wouldn't previously have been willing to buy because they are consuming at home and are not going out and spending a premium. I think Brewdog is kind of it really exemplifies that point, Alex. I mean, we've seen them so active in the market over the last 12 months. And at Brewdog really do see themselves as a premium product in, in the beer subset of the food. But they but their sales have done extremely well over the last 12 months through a huge variety of different tactics. You have the huge sustainability drive where they're planting uh, enormous amounts of trees for all the beer they sell. But at the same time, you've got the, the dispute they had with Aldi where, they, where Aldi tried to Aldi put a similar beer on the shelves and they had that dispute, but they turned it around and had the Aldi IPA on the shelves. I mean, they're really being innovative and seeking to kind of use every opportunity they can to kind of make the most of their more of a premium brand. And I think it's doing really well for them. And that that swift, reactive, uh, innovative strategy in this, these last 12 months has been really successful. I think brands that have more of an authentic and cut through attitude and behaviour are the ones that, that stay top of mind with people. Um, because if you just follow... The, the the language, the behaviours, the styles, the accepted norms of your category, whatever you're in, you will blend in. You know, it's the brands that actually have the confidence to stand out, disrupt and be different and be proud to be different are the ones that, that 
sticking the favourites bit in your head. And that's where you've got to be. You've got to be memorable. I think it'd be really interesting, actually, to see after lockdown whether consumer behaviours towards consumption of beer and wine, for example, um, stay the same. So undoubtedly, for obvious reasons, consumption at home of beer and wine has gone up in the last year. But will we see, after the hospitality industry is able to open its doors again, will we still see people buying as much beer and wine from the supermarkets and consuming as much beer and wine at home as they have done during lockdown? Will the drinking at home market take a significant market share away from the hospitality industry? Or will will we see a, a maintenance of the levels of, of people drinking that kind of product at home and also going out and continuing to, to go out and enjoy themselves, drink when, when going to restaurants for a meal? Now, will there be an uptick in the overall um, spend on beer and wine? Or will it just be redistributed after lockdown in in kind of a reverse of the way it was redistributed during lockdown? It'd be really interesting to see how that pans out. I agree. I agree. I just want to um, move things on now um, and actually going back to your reference to the hospitality industry, Alex, and, and just think about the technology that we have seen um, arise during the pandemic to solve some of the problems we've faced. And I want to think about whether we think that technology is going to remain in place or whether it'll fade away. And there are two kind of interesting pieces here. On, on the one hand, um, I, I've recently joined um, uh, a couple of societies for Keep My Evenings Interesting. And they've told me that the numbers that have come to the society have doubled since uh, the pandemic. And they say it's a lot of it's down to kind of the likes of Zoom because people find it so more accessible. And so when they come out of the pandemic, they're going to keep that going, but still go back to some face-to-face -face interaction. And the other example I want to look at was, of course, the rise of the Amazon stores, whereby they're actually, uh, they've still got stores. They think they're going to go back to the high street, but there's going to be no face-to-face -face interaction there at all. So in terms of kind of the technology, which we're using uh, aside from e-commerce to kind of deal with and to interact with each other, how do you think that's going to uh, survive or stay or will it fade away? What do you think, Simon? I think where technology is useful and adds efficiencies and, and benefits in service, it will be employed. But we are fundamentally social beings. We like human interaction. We like to see that, that, that people are involved in that process. And we like to deal with people. I mean, how many people do you, do you hear who almost go apoplectic with rage when they can't get in touch with somebody to have a to get a complaint through be it their gas telephone uh, whatever it might be a delivery from amazon whatever it could be if you can't speak to somebody and you can't have that face to face even if it's on zoom you know there is a human aspect and it just depends on the level of uh, that is required to deliver the experience of your business and your brand so i think it's it, technology is there always to enhance, always to create benefits, but not at the expense of face-to-face -face where it is genuinely important in delivery. Yeah, I completely agree. Alex, what do you think? I think what we've we've all seen over the last year is how the quality of video calls, whether it's Zoom, whether it's Teams, whether it's Skype, it's increased so much in comparison to now, everybody's experience of that kind of technology a few years back that going forward it's really difficult to imagine a world in which we only have telephone calls we only have audio calls 
like, I mean, I mean, if you think from a social perspective, like the phone call had almost died and been replaced by WhatsApp before that text messages. People didn't tend to speak to each other on the phone unless it was a very functional, you know, conversation to arrange X, Y, Z. But people didn't really chat on the phone. I think lockdown has seen people get back into the habit with chatting to each other using technology, but using video conferencing technology. And it, I think that provides a real opportunity for businesses, particularly from a customer services perspective, to engage on a different level with their consumers. If you're phoning up and you've got a complaint um, about your user experience and you spend ages going through an automated telephone process only to end up on hold and then speaking to somebody who you can't see and you're massively frustrated before you even get there. Businesses have a really great opportunity from video video calling technology to, to pull that situation back around, pacify customers who aren't happy with the services they've received just by being able to see the customer service representative they're talking to. And it'd be again, I think it'd be really interesting to see which businesses cotton onto this and think actually that eye to eye contact, seeing the body language, seeing the facial expression of the person you're speaking to at the business you're complaining to can give them a real opportunity to salvage goodwill and keep customers that they would otherwise be losing. And build goodwill. I think that's that that's the other opportunity. We now have technological opportunities to build much more deep and meaningful personal relationships. That's a, that's a huge technological boost and boom to um, to something which is vitally important. You know, building deeper relationships with your customers. What I should have admitted when I first raised the subject with the society I was thinking about was in fact a whiskey society, which I've joined in Winchester. And of course, the interesting thing about that is that whenever we meet, we have a representative from a distillery in that meeting. But that means that the distilleries suddenly have got access to a huge, great, much greater number of direct access. They've got their representatives talking to people who themselves are going to influence all these people around them, which they've never had the opportunity to do before. So I think it's probably, uh, without realising, that's a great example of how the technology which we've used to solve a problem actually has given and opened the doors for a much wider opportunity for the way businesses can actually interact with consumers. And I think to a certain extent that is going to stay. Yeah. And and you can add value through that experience. So if you're actually speaking to your, um, you know, your whiskey distiller, they can be in their environment. You know, you can you can be transported to the experience, you know, the, the destination there, there and then during that meeting. And that that adds richness. They've literally been sitting in the distillery surrounded by bottles of Glenfiddich or that there are other whiskies are available. And it, I've enjoyed it fantastically. It's a really good experience. And, and I, I would go and buy a bottle of Glenfiddich before. Mm-hmm. I would have got now and I would have done again anyway. There we go. Right. Um, I want to move on to the high street now because obviously all of this rise of technology and the rise of e-commerce has, has really made people ask questions as what the future of the high street is going to look like. I think we know that in December, 50% fewer consumers visited shops than they had done in previous years, which is a remarkable uh, fall notwithstanding the obviously implications of, of COVID. And the questions I really want to know is, it kind of, can, will that footfall return? And if so, what will the stores on the high street look like in the future? Simon, I'll come to you first. Yeah, I, I think there is a, there is a role um, for the high street and resurgence, particularly with the, the trend towards localism and the types of, of, of fresher products 
the experience that people still want to touch, feel, uh, and and taste and sample certain things. Yes, you might be able, you know, you might be happy with taking your uh, groceries in a pandemic, you know, when when you can just get them delivered. But when there's an opportunity to to go out and and touch the bread, feel the apples, bananas, whatever that might be, see the fish from the fish mouth, get the meat from the butchers. There's an opportunity to really feel that you are nurturing and and going going back to a more social environment that that is controlled. So I think there's opportunities for the high street to to rethink what it does. You know, even John Lewis, who are shutting down some of their stores, have said that they'll look at smaller store formats for people to experience in a in a in a high street environment. So I think there's opportunities for people to to reinvent the high street and understand that the the social driver of localism uh, is an opportunity to take advantage of it. Alex, I think that um, I, I'm convinced that the high street, particularly the city centres, won't see the same footfall that they've seen in the past, and that's on a uh, inevitable and irreversible downward curve if things if the offer that the city centre provides stays the same we've for for decades or for probably you know since city centres start started to attract consumers into shops there you'll have a, a cohort of people who enjoy going out shopping and you'll have a cohort of people who really don't go enjoy going out shopping and they do it because it's a necessary evil and an increasing number of that second cohort over the last year have realised that they don't actually have to go into the city centre and go down the high street at all because they can get most of what they need online. And those people are never going to be tempted back. So what the high street is going to need to do is find other ways of attracting different people or more attracting more of the first, first cohort who do enjoy shopping. Um, and that probably means that you know, the type of offering that the city centre businesses provide is going to need to change so it's focused more on the probably luxury end, the premium end, where the experience of buying in person, in a shop, where you can see things in the flesh, potentially try things on, have you know, go and make it a, a social experience with friends, um, is going to be supported and is going to be the draw. But the I think the functional um, part of shopping and going to the high street because I need to go and buy my shopping. I, I think that's an irreversible decline um, and it'd be really interesting actually to see high street businesses in the FMCG sector particularly what they do to confront that challenge because if I think of the likes of Superdrug and Boots I absolutely see that there is always going to be the a, a convenience need to pick up products from stores of that nature but will they continue to need and be able to justify the square footage which they currently occupy particularly when a lot of people will just think i'm going to buy that sort of product online because i know i buy the same stuff week in week out month in month out and i don't need to go into the city center to do that yeah i i think alex that's exactly right there's two types of of high street i guess there's the local high street and there's the city center and i think the natural anxiety which will prevail for some considerable time with people being reluctant to associate and gather in larger groups, I think will be an issue for some people. So I think naturally footfall will be um, inhibited for, for some time, uh, particularly in the bigger city centres. 
Unfortunately, now's never been a better time for businesses to be able to change in the sense that the new planning orders mean that you can change your business very quickly in order to change how you use your real estate and, and how you do it. So my hope is that businesses on the high street can pivot quickly and, and adapt to these the, the new environment in which they're living. But otherwise, I think I agree with everything that you both say there, absolutely everything. Moving on from the high street, I want to move into a, a more niche area, and that's in the area of travel, because, of course, Travel has been affected uh, more uniquely than any other sector in that uh, the effect of the pandemic on travel restrictions, the form of travel restrictions has meant the whole industry has to all intents and purposes collapsed. So what I want to talk about is really how that particular sector will bounce back from the pandemic and how consumers will buy their, their holiday and their holiday services in the future. Alex, what are your thoughts on this? I guess the first thing to say is that the vast majority of people are now pretty desperate to be able to get away, go on holiday, go somewhere new or different, enjoy themselves and put the last year behind them, or at least try to put the last year behind them. Um, what I do wonder though is whether people will be as willing and as keen to travel and go on holiday in the same ways that they have done before. So e even when restrictions ease and we're able to, if we want to go on a family holiday to Spain, um, stay in an all-inclusive resort and spend a lot of time in the beach or around the pool at the hotel. A lot of people will want to do that again, absolutely. But there will be also be an awful lot of people who will think, I'm not sure that I want to be elbow to elbow with hundreds of people I don't know in a hotel for two weeks because I don't know what they've been up to. I don't know how safe they've been. I want actually more socially distanced options for me and my family. And what I'm willing to do as well is forego maybe the two week holiday for a one week holiday, which may be a bit more expensive on a day to day basis, but but gives me something different, gives me more space and gives me more safety. And maybe I'm not going to go on holiday as often. And again, I think probably what we might see is, is a, a premiumization again in the travel industry where people are a lot more selective in what they want to do, where they want to travel to, and how many strangers they want to share that experience with. Uh, and again, I think it'll be interesting to see how the travel industry adapts to provide those opportunities, which today are probably seen as niche opportunities for young people who want to get out and travel the world, or for the adrenaline junkies or you know culture vultures. But the more sort of traditional package holiday, how can that how can that be adapted to maintain its appeal to the number of people that it's been appealing to in the past by demonstrating an awareness of people's concerns about COVID, safety, the environment that they're holidaying in? I, I completely agree. I think that what, what, of course, is the other factor to all of that is, of course, that over the last 12 months um, for holidays that were bit booked uh, before the pandemic or early on in the pandemic, we saw so many cancellations last year and so many issues in the press about money not being refunded, about companies, uh, holiday companies uh, going into administration, that a lot of consumers will want stronger guarantees either that the holiday is going to go ahead one way or another or that um, in the event of any form of cancellation that's beyond their control that, that they're going to get their money back and i think well, people will want to, uh, to get those those guarantees from the holiday companies themselves notwithstanding any protection they might get from credit card uh, insurance for example 
Sammy, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I think it's going to be an interesting dynamic, but I think the volume and the recovery will come from two sources. I think it'll come from uh, the the Gen Z age group. I think, you know, there's a year's worth of 18-year-olds who've never been into a pub yet, and uh, they want to get out. You know, the time of life where socialising is vital and is important, I think the uh, the 18 to 30s will drive the desire to go to, to new places. They want to speak, uh, experience new places, and they have that invincibility of, of youth. Um, so that, you know, the, the barriers to them travelling is probably lower. I think then equally at the opposite end of the scale, I think retirees and the elderly people will who are limited on time and are quite willing to accept that they are limited on time, want to just get on and get on and enjoy it. So they will drive, you know, once they've been vaccinated, once they have the protection, they will drive um, volume at the far end of the market. I think where the middle of the market and the, the family, the traditional family holidays restricted to condensed periods of time and therefore condensed uh, populations of people will be the area where people might take some some shifting and I agree with Alex that I think people will start to look at newer areas quieter areas what is different where I can actually still have that experience but in a more uh, a more safe form of adventure I think is going to be required that's really interesting and but the last topic I want to cover before we wrap up is that of Brexit um, we're obviously Brexit has now happened but that has happened in the midst of the pandemic and we can't ignore the effect that Brexit will have on the consumer sector so I just want to have a think about how Brexit is going to affect our consumer markets. Alex? I think that consumers have already started to notice that in the past, well, up until the end of last year, when they've ordered stuff online, typically haven't really cared too much about where it's coming from, um, haven't thought too much about where it's coming from, and then haven't thought about what the impact of Brexit would be on their consumer experience, on delivery times on costs, particularly hidden costs. And, and we're really starting to see that. And I, I think Brexit actually provides a real opportunity for some sort of early, early movers in the consumer industry to really generate a profile and reputation for being transparent with consumers about what Brexit means for them as consumers, what impact it will have on their options as consumers, costs for them as consumers, laying that whole piece bare, showing real transparency and, and basically convincing consumers that they are going to take um, the uncertainty and the frustration around those issues away from the consumer and do as much as they can to deliver the same sort of experience, deliver on the same sort of expect expectations they had before Brexit. Because at the moment there's just too much uncertainty and, and, a, and a kind of prevalent lack of understanding, I think, within the consumer base about what Brexit might mean for them as consumers. There, are, you know, there's an opportunity for businesses to take hold of, take control of that piece, own it, and we'll win some real goodwill and consumer loyalty as a result. Simon, it, it's an absolutely colossal question to try and get uh, get an answer for because it depends on what type of business that you are. But I think Brexit equally, as, as Alex says, opens up a range of opportunities for people. 
even businesses, you know, which have been devastated by by Brexit from a short term perspective, like the shellfish industry um, and seafood industry, it makes them start to look at uh, addressing local markets. So there are beneficial aspects of growing new markets uh, and and helping people uh, educate people about products that perhaps haven't been consumed as much as they should be in in uh, in our uh, society. And then I think there are also um, the opportunities for for people to reevaluate what they do, the the range of of prices, the range of choices that are available, and and I, I think it it'll help people sharpen sharpen their act, which which we all you know we all need to do, and and it's a big wake up call for businesses to to reappraise. Thanks, Simon. Just to wrap things up, I want to come to one final question to you both. And that is, if you could give a business one piece of advice to help them over the next 12 months, what would it be? Alex? It seems really simple and, and really obvious what I'm going to suggest. Um, but it's it's nonetheless really very important despite that. And it's, you know, businesses shouldn't fit, fall into the trap of believing that once lockdown restrictions are, are eased and we're back to some sort of normality or a new kind of normality that all of the things the strategies the techniques that work for them before lockdown are going to work for them in the same way after lockdown because consumers have moved on consumer behaviors have moved on um, their competitors have moved on and are doing different things and to keep up to maintain or win, win back market share and grow market share they are going to have to change as well. They're going to have to continue to adapt, be entrepreneurial to the extent that they can be, um, not rest on their laurels and accept that the world has changed and that the way they engage with consumers and the way they service consumers needs to change as well. And that bit, that bar will continue to rise um, as the years go by. And if they don't right, raise their standards to, to meet that raising that rising bar, then they'll fall behind their competitors and, and they'll be in a battle to survive. Simon. Yeah, I, I think um, again for me it's a it's a simple piece of advice. Brands and businesses that are coming out on top are brands that have a clear cause and a purpose, that uh, are seen to be doing good to their people and uh, to their supply chain and the environment. And the key thing is, if you get your strategic value proposition right, what is the opportunity that I'm seizing? What is the human insight that is behind it? And what is the problem that I'm solving in a way that is better to other people? And then articulating that through the experience of your brand, that's the key thing. But get your strategic value proposition sorted. And I think just to kind of add a, an extra string to that one, of course, is to actually be authentic about it. Yeah. You have to, in this modern day and age, particularly with uh, Generation Z coming up and testing everything you say, you have to be what you say you are, and you have to be able to, to support that through utter transparency in everything you do. Yeah, I think that's Cause absolutely vital for business going forward. Absolutely. I think if you if you aren't relevant and you don't deliver it with a distinctive attitude that's different from everybody else so that you stand out from the crowd you'll just blend into the crowd well 
Thank you both very much. That was a, a really interesting conversation. And that's it for today. If you want to read more about what we've discussed, head to owenmitchell.com and follow the link to our report from the Consumer Sector page. Thanks for listening to the Owen Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then join us for our next episode. Stay safe.